The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org. Our reading this morning is from a book called The Good Book, Reading the Bible with Mind and Heart. It is by the late Reverend Peter J. Gomes, who was the minister for decades at the Memorial Church at Harvard and the Plummer Professor of Christian Morals at the University. Reverend Gomes writes the following. Critics of the Bible have often said that its moral authority is compromised by the fact that it's filled with so many less than exemplary characters. No less an exemplary character than Helen Keller said of the Bible in her autobiography, quote, there is much to the Bible against which every instinct of my being rebels so much that I regret the necessity which has compelled me to read it from beginning to end. Thomas Paine, writing his anti-religious tract, The Age of Reason, complained of the, quote, obscene stories, the voluptuous debaucheries, the cruel and tortuous executions and unrelenting vindictiveness with which so much of the Bible is filled. What engages the reader of the Bible is the fact that it is filled with people much like the reader, people who are confused and confusing, who are less than exemplary, but who nevertheless participate in a developing encounter with God. If the Bible were just about the successful and the pious, it would be little more than a collection of Horatio Alger's tales or Barbara Cartland romances. What makes the Bible interesting and compelling is the company of human beings who through its pages play their part in the drama of the human and the divine. In the sense that Bible stories tell our story, the human story, in relationship to the divine, they are true. They are not true because they are in the Bible. They are in the Bible because they are true to the experience of real people. Here ends our reading today and the challenge to which we will put the story of Jonah. The story that we're telling today, it begins with Jonah. For those of you who aren't familiar with the Bible, the one most Christians hold up on Sunday that was always visible in the house of my grandmother's, that the president held when he came out for show in front of St. 
John's Episcopal Church in Lafayette Square not so long ago, clearing out clergy and prophetic witnesses in order to do so. Oh, the irony. That book is better described as a library, a library of human wisdom, a collection of poetry and history, of song and story. And if you don't already know, it has two sections, right? The front half are those books and texts written in Hebrew that were and still are part of the Jewish tradition that we call the Hebrew scriptures. Wisdom that's carried forward with reverence in Christianity. And the second half contains later texts, mostly written in Greek, some that were influenced by earlier original sources in languages like Aramaic. These are the writings that describe a set of communities and traditions that date from the life of Jesus onward and center around his life and teachings and the religious tradition they gave rise to. Within the Bible, this Bible, the earlier part drawn from the Jewish tradition is the book of Jonah. Jonah is part of the piece of those scriptures that is full of the stories of the prophets. The prophets, these characters, these teachings, people who are associated with issuing warnings and wake-up calls in their time, prophets who were, let's be candid, kind of the downers of the religious life, right? They're the ones who show up and they tell you that you and your people have lost your way and that you are in grave danger because of it. Being called to be a prophet, well, let's just be clear, I don't think it's something that most children grow up dreaming of and understandable too then, why you might resist such a call if it came. Jonah, perhaps, is the most famous resistor. The book of Jonah starts with such a call. The voice of God, we are told, this voice that when you hear it is apparently indisputably the voice of God. It comes and it tells Jonah to go to a city called Nineveh, a great city, and prophesy. As you might have guessed, the Ninevites, if that's what they called themselves, they weren't being good people. And it was time to let them know that their wickedness needed to come to an end. That is, it would end one way or the other. Jonah, hearing this voice of God knowing of this time-sensitive need. Well, what did he do? He headed straight in the other direction toward the sea, and he bought a one-way ticket to the place that probably was the furthest away he could imagine, to Tarshish, which we now think is somewhere on modern-day Spain's coast. And off he went. You might imagine, if you are God in the story, you'd be none too pleased with this turn of events. So this same God sent a mighty wind 
hurled up a mighty storm. Jonah, in a moment that is clueless or comic or both, he sleeps soundly in the hold of the ship while the sailors throw everything frantically overboard in an attempt, all of the cargo so that the ship doesn't break apart. And then finally, it occurs to the sailors whether or not maybe God is involved. And so they all pray to their respective gods, but the storm continues. And then they, they start to wonder and guess who might in fact be to blame. And they wake up Jonah and he agrees he's the one to blame. And he generously suggests that they throw him overboard to save themselves. And to their credit, they do try a few other things before they give up and do the only last thing they can and cast Jonah into the roiling ocean. God, meanwhile, forever gracious and forgiving, didn't let the resistant prophet drown. In the story, God sends transportation to Jonah. It arrives in the form of a big fish, technically not translated as whale, but big fish, just so you know, that swallows the young man up. And so Jonah, the Reluctant prophet spends three days in the belly of the fish as it journeys to reflect on his situation, on God's mercy and wrath, and you might say to get his prophetic act in order. After those three days, the fish spits Jonah onto dry land God repeats his request to Jonah, and Jonah dutifully heads to Nineveh. Jonah's warning to the people of Nineveh has amazing success. The people in that city somehow believed this man who must have smelled awful and looked worse. They believed him and they changed their hearts. They started fasting and praying for forgiveness. Even the king puts on sackcloth and ashes and calls for fasting and repentance and declares an end to their violent ways. And so as a result of all this change of heart, we are told, God spares the people of Nineveh from the calamities that God was fully prepared to bring down upon them. Think, think for a moment how hard it must do to change people's ways like that, right? How much a people committed to prophetic naming, for instance, throughout history have railed against wrong and against oppression and taken to the streets have cited statistics of, for instance, police brutality or anti-blackness and evidence of white supremacy culture, school-to-prison pipeline and Jim Crow modern-day laws, and for how many decades and how slow wickedness can be to see and mourn and repent. Just think about that. Because hats off to Jonah, right? 
Well, already, first of all, I want to say that I hope you can see that this story, which is not literal truth and was never intended to be read as such, but as a literary device to convey something about our struggles and our lives, how it invites us in, in our own lives, with reflection. Folks who talk about biblical story and traditions around them, they would encourage the people listening to do exactly what we just found ourselves stumbling into, to listen and wonder with our own lives bouncing up against it. And in fact, some would encourage us to enter into this process deliberately by putting ourselves into the place of the characters in the story. And some would suggest that we start with the least obvious characters as we engage the story the way it was meant to be engaged. So bear with me. Let's do that for just a second. I mean, are you perhaps the sailors or one of the sailors on the boat? Are you doing your job? Are you working hard to make things work, often with your life thrown into chaos by someone else's mess, and you, an honorable person, trying to keep things held together despite all the wrenches and difficulties and challenges thrown your way, but maybe, maybe a little tired, a little angry, sometimes disappointed by how things play out. Or, or maybe lately you're the big fish. Maybe you're the one stepping in to rescue those in need, answering the call to offer yourself as literally a vessel for what is divine in the world, for healing, for guiding power in the universe, to let it use you however it can. And, and maybe, maybe then the story reminds you how Despite the fact that sometimes it can seem pointless, all this rescuing of rebellious souls and all the storms they create in their wake, that sometimes people do turn themselves around and the world around them with it. Or, or are you the Ninevite? I mean... Have you gone off the deep end with some behavior that you know isn't right? Maybe something that momentarily feels good, but it really isn't good for you or those around you. Maybe you're in some cycles of hurt and violence, emotional, psychological, spiritual, physical. Maybe you've gotten accustomed to a world in which things aren't good, but feel normal that way. And some sense of you, you realize, has been waiting for a wake-up call or a chance to stop or to repent or to change your life, to live clean, to be in 
more loving relationships to others, right relationship? Are there prophets you can heed already calling you? Could you answer the call? Because the story says that cities and nations and people even stuck in a pattern of hurt and wrong can turn themselves around and pretty quickly. Or maybe you and I are Jonah running from something and maybe we don't necessarily know it to be the voice of God, but maybe we'd call it the voice of truth inside us, our deepest self whispering to us maybe through a feeling that keeps bubbling up and asking for attention, maybe work that calls to us in the world, maybe a question that we hear, but an answer to which we know will be challenging or maybe inconvenient or just scary, so we turn away from it. Have you ever run to the sea or do you sleep or sleepwalk as a means of escape or avoidance? Well, I suppose you could find a small group to help you process some of this, <laughs> to not be alone in it. We all have something we're running from, probably. Isn't this gorgeous? that there's this abundance to leap into with our whole selves and travel with and let it tell us things about ourselves. And, and then like the whale, deliver us to the place we need to be. And all of it actually part of this larger story of deliverance and second chances that is the foundation of the story, right? That every character plays a part in. So no matter where we are, we're part of this larger narrative of hope, wherever we see ourselves in the tale. Well, normally, I think I would leave us there. I'd be like, blessings and have a good week, everybody, and I love you, but I, I can't do it. So pour yourself quickly another cup of coffee or get up and stretch because there's there's more to the story. It actually doesn't end where we normally stop. And that part of the story is so relevant, I can't stand for us not to go there. So be patient with me, my friends. Trust me. The story of Jonah, the book of Jonah, it turns out, doesn't end with people ceasing their wicked ways and turning themselves around. It has this other part. The part that comes next, after this remarkable success of Jonah's, is where he gets pissed off, you might say. He doesn't get mad, it turns out, about the storm or being thrown into the belly of a fish or all that, but he gets angry that Nineveh is spared in the story. That is what really bothers him. It, it turns out Jonah actually hoped that Nineveh would get viciously punished or destroyed no matter what. He's mad, in other words, that God has shown mercy, kindness. So in the story, Jonah literally storms out of the city of Nineveh. He 
sets himself up outside the city in the glaring sunlight, literally watching and hoping still that destruction will roll into the city, sulking. God, who seems again to be merciful, sends a bush to shade Jonah, and Jonah appreciates it. And then strangely in the story, God sends a worm that eats away and destroys the bush, and Jonah gets angry again, and he asks to die. At which point, God says, some version of, you were concerned about a bush that lives and dies, Jonah. But I, I shouldn't be concerned with the 120,000 people and the animals and all that lives in the city of Nineveh. This part of the story, my friends, you can use this at dinner parties, this part of the story, it turns out, is actually the reason the story of Jonah was written and that it was put and carried over in the canon. And this is actually, my friends, thought to be the prophetic part of the story. It was to teach a lesson to some of the Jews of the time, the ones who, who thought well, who were becoming rather exclusive in their notion of God's love and mercy. The Jewish people had seen at this point the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, and some had interpreted, it turns out, this destruction as a sign of God's wrath, and their response to it was to become very strict adherents to the law and practices of purity and to try and keep the Jewish people as pure as possible as a sign of closeness to God. But the steps from that to seeing those who were outside the group as beyond God's love, it was a slippery slope that, that was taking place among some of the people. And the book of Jonah was written to them. Jonah stood for all those who said then and who say all the time in human history that anybody is beyond God's love, beyond our love. It was prophetic, it turns out, not at all because of Jonah, but because of its message about mercy being more precious than judgment, a wake-up call to how our humans can be hard-hearted and parsimonious about who gets grace when we ourselves will so graciously accept it without question in our own lives. It struck me as a very important message to hear and remember right now, right? Stuck in the midst as we are of heated, hard debates. After a week of listening to some speeches at the RNC, painful in their exclusion, protesters stoking hate, how easy it is to lean in that direction. How important to remember that all this othering is ancient and that we are all susceptible to its venom. So then maybe the last character we need to put ourselves in the place of in the story is God. The God that was written and imagined by the writers, right? This force in the story 
who seems determined that the truth gets spoken, that the wayward get invited, all of the wayward get invited back into the embrace of the larger whole that grants mercy more than judgment. This God whose heart stays huge and supple, despite setbacks and betrayals, despite immature behavior from those supposedly who are your allies and partners, who pulls from every resource imaginable, right? Fish and wind and storm and bush and worm to make redemption and second chances possible for everyone. So may we imagine our way into that character too in the story. Bring it alive among us. Heaven knows we need it. And so my friends, the book of Jonah, an ancient and timeless story that begins with Jonah and ends as it always does with us. Blessings. Stay safe, stay connected, stay healthy, stay supple and big-hearted. Amen. The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org.